0: Uh, let me add my good morning to matts said earlier, and also add that if we haven't met yet, I would very much love to meet you and so please do come up, say hi to me, give me your name, i'll give you mine again, and uh, I would love to make your acquaintance we're right in the middle of actually we're kind of we've turned the halfway point and we're on we're on the way home here on uh, our series in First Peter uh, this morning we find ourselves in the middle. Of chapter 3 and as we, get into this, as we get into it, I think it's important to just acknowledge that Peter's teachings to us in this letter have gotten kind of raw lately. Uh, that after he spent about a chapter and a half outlining the grand hope that we have as those who follow Jesus, what Peter has been doing for several weeks in a row now, what Peter's been doing has been seeking to press the hope that we have into some hard places. And for many of us it can feel like he's putting his finger on a bruise and pressing on it a little bit, it hurts. But it's a reminder that it's there and it needs our attention. And I mention this because that is actually something that friends do. The friends are the ones who draw near during hard times. Uh, Best friends are the ones that are willing to sacrifice for us, but best friends are the ones that are actually in those hard places willing to say hard things to us that, that perhaps we need to hear. There's a priestly voice in those places that we really need. And I think that's what we have in Peter here as he talks to us about what it looks like to navigate the hard places in our lives. And so that's what we're going to talk about in First Peter here. First Peter chapter 3, I'll read verses 8 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God thank you let me pray Father, we are bearing witness to your goodness this morning yet again. uh, And we pray that you would help us as we think hard about what this text means to us. Would you take your hope and press it deep into the hard places in our own lives, in our own souls. Help us to learn from these things, to hear them well. Help us to hear what you would have us hear. And I pray that you would help me, your servant, to speak as you would have me speak, to love these friends well, to walk with you and speak in fidelity to this word that you've given to us. Thank you for it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't, know, I don't know why I still get mad about this because it seems to happen on every single one of our family road trips. Uh, you know, like... Every single time Uh, it happened, most recently when we were on our way home from Christmas in Virginia, we were kind of on our way back and everything was great. Like the, the views were great along the mountains and the kids were great, the music was great, our conversations were fun. And you know how there's always that one city, like you think you know, when you're gonna get home, and then there's always that one city where like all the bets are off, you're, you find yourself in gridlock. Usually it's Atlanta, right? This time, this time it was Knoxville, and we're just cruising along, and we find ourselves in complete gridlock. And I was so angry, like everything I thought I knew about how this day was gonna go was just out the window. And we pull into the city, and suddenly like nothing's moving. And I look at the, uh, you know, as we all do. I look at the maps app on my phone, and it's just completely red. Like every every throughway, every major road is completely red. I don't even know what caused it. It was red, 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 like the color of my face was red. I was so I was so upset about it. And then suddenly there was hope, and it came in the form of an alternative route. It's been suggested to me that maybe I could save 40 minutes if I could just get off the interstate right now and maybe it would suggest a way around all of this traffic and I would surely lose time, but it wouldn't be as bad as sitting through it all. And so uh, that's what I did. I made my way, got off the interstate, and you know what? I think everybody else who was running that Maps app got that message at the same time. And so suddenly we were all now in gridlock on a smaller street and then it gives me another route, and I start trying to find... Not kidding. At one point, it told me that I should get back on the interstate going the opposite direction. <laughs> and what I had to accept at some point was that there really wasn't a shortcut around this gridlock. It was just, I was just going to have to endure my way through it. And i tell you that story... Because one of the governing assumptions that Peter is operating with, that you see right at the beginning of this letter and runs all the way through it, is that when it comes to suffering, there's no way around it. It is something that we endure. And back in chapter 1, he laid out the path of the Christian, and he put it like this. He said, we endure the sufferings of Christ in order that we might enjoy the glories that follow. That's his equation for gospel living. He says, suffering now, glories follow. And the distinctiveness of the Christian really is found right there, that not only are we unable to avoid, mitigate, marginalize suffering, but we think it's actually a path forward into something good, the glories that are promised to us. We grow, not in spite of our failures, but by God's grace, somehow we grow because of them. But is, let me ask you this. Is there anything harder? I mean, really, is there anything harder than navigating something difficult when you're upset or when you're sad or when you're alone or when you're <clears throat> discouraged? Like, what, how, how attainable is wisdom in those moments? Like at the time when wisdom is asked for us, I feel like that's also the times when I am least wise. It can feel like your navigation system is just turning around and around and around. In this passage, I think one of the things that Peter is offering to us is guidance in what it looks like to navigate the hard places in life. If hard places are a given and they come to us, if we're, you may be in one now, or you may have one for you in the future. Uh, if hard places are given, what does it look like for a Christ follower to navigate these things? And remember who he was writing to. I mean, his original audience were people that were being persecuted because of their faith. They, they bear the name of Christ. Their allegiance to Christ was well known in the communities, and for many of them, their homes were pillaged, their families were broken up. They had economic suffering. They were isolated by their neighbors. I mean, they, they knew what persecution and suffering looked like. And for you, it might be that, or it might be something else. I mean, we suffer sometimes because of things that we've done, and we suffer because sometimes for things that have been done for us. But in all of these hard places, I think what we see here is Peter speaking both lovingly and honestly to us calling us to something about what it looks like to faithfully navigate these things. And so here's what I wanna give you. First, he calls us to a defiant virtue, defiant virtue. The second one is a provocative hope, defiant virtue, provocative hope, and settled confidence, okay? Defiant virtue, provocative hope, settled confidence. First, let's talk about defiant virtue. I'm really looking at that first paragraph in the text Verses 8 through 12, he calls us to hold on to certain godly virtues that he puts in front of us, that we hold dear to these things as Christians. Look at verse 8. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, before before we try to internalize this, let me ask you to just step back and imagine for a minute what it would be like to a community, to belong to a community of people that was completely composed of these things. Like that, that just sounds wonderful. <laughs> wonderful to be a part of a group of people who are, um, who are deeply sympathetic with each other, that love each other, that's characterized by deep unity and that stands in humility before each other. That really sounds wonderful and I will have you know That there are, that this list of virtues that Peter gives to us is really common in these epistles that were given to the early church. You found a list very similar to this in Ephesians and Romans and Colossians and 1 Thessalonians. And it's easy to look at that and say, well, those are obviously godly virtues, right? Those are things we should aspire to. But what makes them defiant virtues? Well, I would say that the reason for that is because these aren't virtues that we're just called to give one another as people in the church, although that's really important. But these are ways that God calls us to treat everybody, people that seek your good and people that seek your harm. And what's the temptation? That we have when we be, when we come face to face with somebody that 's trying to seek our harm there 's a cycle of conflict that I would say is common if every if any conflict is to last a while. I was talking about this with uh, with Jeff earlier this week, and he pointed me to the writings of somebody named Sue Jones. You may have heard her name she 's a marriage therapist who's really, uh, who, who's really helpful, but she has several names for a cycle of conflict that she'll see happen in a marriage over time. She calls it the protest, she likes dancing, she, call, she like has names for dances, but she calls it the, the protest polka, where people are you know, kind of lobbing protest grenades against each other, or the find the bad guy dance. But the one that grabbed me was the attack, attack dance. Uh, and I think attack, attack is really what we're talking about, where somebody attacks you and the, 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 the impulse, like the instinct that we have is to simply attack back. It's like when we suffer harm, it's almost like somebody mails an invitation to our house that says it's, it's time now to take the gloves off. And that's why verse 9 is so important here. Because Peter tells us that we're to be a people that break that cycle of conflict that we step outside of it. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but but on the contrary, we bless. That central point is the reason Peter goes on to quote Psalm 34 again. You may have noticed that Peter has been quoting Psalm 34 for the past several weeks now. I think I probably should have had it memorized by now. But he says, look at verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That's what defiant virtue is. It is the resolute pursuit of peace, whatever the circumstances. (laughs) And that's the call we're given. Now, what's the obvious question at this point? The, an obvious question is how? Like, I think anybody that would look at this and, uh, and take it seriously, it has to ask the question, how in the world am I going to do this? Because to, to, <laughs> to say this is counterintuitive really is putting it mildly. And also, when we look at these virtues often what suffering does to us is it exposes the ways we're all weak in these areas. Like in suffering, we be, our tender hearts become tougher. Suffering can cause us to fragment. Uh, suffering can expose all the ways that we're not humble. Uh, so, but, and so what are we to do with this? Well, I would say that the, that, that the good news is that we're not left alone to deal with this call that he puts on us. I mean, we can't talk about any list of godly virtues or responding to any call to cultivate virtue in our life without also talking about the role of the Holy Spirit that's given to us. Because you know what the Holy Spirit's job is? One of, one of his jobs is to make us look more and more like Jesus. That when we come to faith, he is at work in the hardest places, in the places where we hurt the most. And he is turning us into this picture of Jesus that we have here. And so I would just tell you, I think it's important that we pray over these things. That we go have conversations with the Holy Spirit and ask him, make me more like Jesus. bend my instincts toward this call. That he is building these responses into our internal wiring. That's what he's up to. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. But it's also important to see that I think that he gives us each other. It's really telling to me that this is not a letter written to an individual person. But it's actually written to a group of people. And it's not just written to a group of people. But it's written to a church. And one of the reasons the church is such a gift to us is that it is building into our lives people to help each other along in the Christian faith. Look, I, you, may, you may be the exception or you may know of an exception, but I'll tell you, I've never known anyone who became this kind of virtuous through isolated, self-imposed discipline. I mean, that could help, but I don't, I, I don't know anyone. But I'll tell you, I know a lot of people who became immersed in a community of believers and slowly over time came to more closely resemble what Peter is talking about in this passage. And let me, let me tell you, this is going to lead to some curious responses. Like when you bless those who persecute you, people are going to wonder about you and what makes you tick. It's going to provoke people to wonder about the hope behind how you live. It is going to build in you a provocative hope it seems to me that peter's looking back at time, at, at a time at, that he's thinking very very clearly remembering a time when jesus was preparing his disciples to go out and bear his name in the world Uh, Matthew 10 is the story of that, and it's a wonderful companion passage to this one. He tells them that persecution will come to those who bear his name, and he says, this is what he says. He says, have no fear of them. Do not fear him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. What he's saying is, let your fear of the Lord, which is that reverent awe that comes from knowing him deeply as one of your children, one of his children, displace your fear of man. Let your fear of the Lord displace your fear of man. One is truly powerful and the other is not. And that's exactly what's behind what Peter is talking about in verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Let your fear of the Lord displace your fear of man. Listen, fear of man is a powerful motivator, is it not? Like fear of man can drive you into all kinds of places, many of them terrible. But if, when we begin to understand, this is one of the gifts the fear of the Lord gives us, is that we begin to understand that how tightly we're held by a God who loves us, how tightly we're held in Jesus who gave himself for us, how tightly we're held by the Holy Spirit who's abiding within us, we find that our transcendent hope displaces the fear of man. And if the life of faith is anything, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. The life of faith is this long trajectory endurance race that we're all running. And if the strength for running this race is going to come from anywhere, it's going to come from hope. Hope is what keeps us going. Transcendent hope. Hope that suffering, hope that tells us that suffering comes to an end one day. Hope that reminds us that a suffering savior is coming back for us. Hope that he's going to make all things new again. These are the things that hope tells us. Hope that glory really does follow suffering. That hope is what holds us. And hope is also what frees us. And our hope in the enduring love of Jesus was given to us when we were enemies of God. He gave us hope. Is what strengthens us when we do that hard work of following this call that he gives us to. And these enemies... Whoever they are will see your hope. And they'll ask for an explanation about the reason for the hope that is in you because nothing says hope like looking at hard places and saying, You don't get to have me. Like nothing says hope, transcendent hope, like looking at someone that seeks your harm and says, You may harm me, but you don't get to have me. I belong to Jesus. And my soul is safe in his hands. And, 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 and isn't that what we want? I mean, don't we want people to know our hope? The world needs hope. Your neighbors need hope. Just go, do this for me. Go home and look up on any major like, news website and look at the headlines. What are you going to see? One of the things you will see is a world that needs hope. Or, or better yet, uh, listen to a comedian. Uh, the, some of the, my favorite comedians are excellent. They're hilarious at being able to point at common experiences that are troublesome in a hilarious way, that's what they do. They need, but, but look, those things might make us laugh, but do they help us? Where, where is hope to be found? The world needs hope. Is there anything more loving, anything that serves the world around you better than by showing people there's a reasonable case to be made for hope? That that showing people the way that Jesus is at work in you and this thing that you believe in makes the case for hope. Because hope declares the confidence that we have in Jesus, that he's more powerful than anything we might suffer in this life. And that's why Peter goes on to explain the settled confidence, settled confidence, that we have as God's people. Now, when we look at verse 18 and going forward, that's what I'm doing here. When we look at verse 18 and going forward, we're looking at one of the hardest passages to make sense of in the entire Bible, okay? I'm not alone in that. Uh, many, many, many great scholars have looked at this passage and said, uh, I'm, I actually don't know what this means. So Martin, here's a quote from Martin Luther. This is great. He says, a wonderful test is this, and a more obscure passage than any other in the Bible so that I don't know with certainty what it means at all. <laughs> One pastor I was listening to said this. said, said that um, uh, all, all Scripture is good in edifying to God's people. Not all uh, passages are, e- are the easiest to understand. That was the way he put it. And, of course, the passage that he's talking about is, look, is, uh, is verse 19 and 20. It says this, "...in which he went," Jesus in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What in the world is that talking about? Well, hang with me on this one. Throughout church history, there were really two views on what that, that those verses mean. Um, and if you look at it, if you, if you care, uh, if you look at it, um, what you'll find are various permutations of these two views. The first view says that there's like this prison somewhere where spirits of the people who died and uh, and Jesus went there after he was crucified and before his resurrection, he went there to preach the gospel. Uh, I don't lean toward that view. The second view is this one. Uh, this is Augustine's view. It says that the spirit of Jesus was preaching to the people through Noah in the time leading up to the flood. Um, 2 Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. There seems to be, to me, some meat on that bone that Jesus is often said to be preaching through his preachers to share the gospel. Um, and, uh, but I don't want to presume that I can be any more firm on this than anybody else is. But the point that Peter's making in this passage, is he's making several, and I just want to name one before you. He's drawing a timeline for us. Look at back at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is a picture of the substitutionary atonement that Jesus offers. He's saying that the means by which we know God is through the suffering of another that went before us. The righteous went for the unrighteous and that by Christ's death, our unrighteous selves are made righteous by the faith that he gives us suffering and, uh, and death is what Jesus endured. But where is Christ now? Look at verse 22. See the timeline of Christ's victory that he's drawing for us. After the resurrection, he went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Listen, every, every authority, he just told us that every authority that we might suffer under in this life are ultimately subject to Jesus our king what's the trajectory he laid out for us the timeline of Christ's victory suffering death resurrection glory and Peter is telling us that that trajectory of Christ's life is our trajectory too that you belong on the timeline of Jesus' victory, and it ends in glory. That just as Jesus rose from the dead and was completely vindicated before God the Father, you will be too. His victory is your settled confidence, because grace is the great interruption. That if you belong to Jesus, it's because his grace interrupted the trajectory of your life. That he saw us dead in our sin in a cycle of conflict with God himself. And instead of giving us what we deserve, he gave us grace. The righteous for the unrighteous. Listen, you want to see the world change? I know you do. I do too. How does the world change? The world changes the same way you and I change. By interrupting grace, going to work in God's people. Let me close this way. One more story. Two weeks ago, uh, Tish Harrison Warren wrote an article called The Astonishing Moral Beauty. The Astonishing Moral Beauty of Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and the Black Church. I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful article, um, and it's an amazing example to us, I think, of what Peter is talking about. Living in Birmingham, there's probably little doubt you've heard this name. Uh, Shuttlesworth, our airport's named after him. There are plenty of other places also. There's, a, there's even a Shuttlesworth Award that's given out uh, every year. Uh, he was a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist, not far from here, and he had this prominent role in the civil rights movement, and that often put him in some pretty hard places. Um, but if I could say anything about Reverend Shuttlesworth, it would be this, that he, um, he knew, he was intimately familiar with his interrupting grace that operates in the hard places. One of the scariest moments in his life, serving in this role right in the middle of, of, uh, of civil rights activism, um, happened when he was taking his children to, to Phillips High School just as soon as the school was integrating. And when he got there with his children, he was met by a mob of angry protesters who came at him with, with violent intent. And accounts of this are really harrowing to read. Um, but here's the part of this whole thing that I can't shake. Um, uh, he, uh, the, a reporter came to him later that day, uh, after he had suffered uh, immensely that day, and asked him the question... Um, what what are you working for in Birmingham? And this is what he said. He said, I'm working for the day when the man who beat me and my family with chains at Phillips High School can sit down with us as a friend. Now look, everything I've read about this man says there was nothing weak or timid about him. But when I look at that, I think this guy knows something about grace that he needs to teach me. And you know why that story grabs our heart? Because it's not just a picture of the grace that we give. It's actually a picture to us of the grace that we've received. That the story of Jesus, as he goes forward to his own crucifixion, interrupting grace was on his lips. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's how enemies like you and me, get turned in to the children of grace. And that's who you are. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would convince our hearts And despite the difficulty of these words and this teaching that you would give us a yearning to see your grace go to work in the hard places in our own lives, in each other's lives, in the city of Birmingham. That's what we are asking for. Help us, Father. I pray in your name. Amen.